Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. What it comes down to is we don't have any, for working-class people like ourselves, we don't have anyone else bar each other. You know, we, we're up against the multinational banks, final international finance, governments, big business, everything. We're up against the whole entire system. It's not our system. China is getting more and more aggressive and dangerous. I know I keep saying this, but this is a real and present danger. The Chinese Communist Party is crushing Australia's economy. Will Australia stand up to China or back down? down? As the day in which the Chinese regime disgraced itself in front of the world. Where you've got Xi Jinping saying that Marx was the greatest thought leader ever and that he's wanted to style himself on the basis of Joseph Stalin, the most heinous of the Soviet dictators. So, what a farce, what an utter stitch up. Communist Party dictatorship has responded to us. Just like the one Stalin used to stage in the Soviet Union. That makes it sound tough and cool. Just imagine the worst and that's what's being done. China says Australia is infected with fear, conjecture and paranoia. Where'd that come from? Have you had advice on how to respond best to China culturally? Um, they're so ridiculous. They're, they're insulting, of course, but... Uh, I mean, the Chinese are messing with us. Let's face it. Referring to Australia as being a bit of a nuisance, like chewing gum on the sole of your shoe, uh, I mean, this is a real ratcheting up of rhetoric here, but... Beijing has fired another shot at Canberra as the trade war continues to escalate. I remember an Australian Prime Minister appearing so angry and delivering such a scathing assessment of any nation outside of wartime. These Chinese officials are just sending aggressive tweets to get a rise out of people. So, let's call it what it is. Troll-faced diplomacy. And then we see this quite explosive tweet. That's what's a little incongruous with the situation right now. One thing for sure is that this is remains a volatile and difficult one for Scott Morrison to manage. But no nation with a scintilla of, mortali- of morality or diplomacy does what China did today. From an official social media account on Twitter, the Chinese Foreign Ministry published a doctored image of an Australian digger slitting the throat of an Afghan child with its head wrapped in the Afghan flag. Don't be afraid, we are coming to bring you peace, the image states. The repugnant post made today of an image, a falsified image, of an Australian soldier threatening a young child with a knife. Because Australia is so evil. A post made on an official Chinese government Twitter account. The Chinese Communist Party is trying to pwn Australia. Posted by the Deputy Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Mr. Lijian Zhao, is utterly outrageous and it cannot be justified on any basis whatsoever. But at the same time, our government and our military should hold its fire as well in persecuting our own SAS unit before the courts deal with these allegations. Both the tweet and the image are about a recent independent report commissioned by the Australian government. Uh, And it's time to unite as a country 
and just knuckle down to the task of finding other partners to deal with, ones that can be trusted and ones that won't threaten bully us in this type of way. That's going to take time though. China accounts for 50% of our exports. It is not going to be easy, Peter, but uh, there's an old Chinese saying that uh, the... Taking the total value of banned agricultural goods past $7 billion. We've got ourselves into a situation at the moment where we depend for our national prosperity on trade with China. This is Australia where nearly 50% of our exports go to China. It's got a monetary and a financial impact. Oh, massive impact. Eric, the liberalisation that we were all hoping for is not happening. In fact, it is regressing and we have to take a stronger stand against this dictatorship. We have said on many occasions that Australia has repeatedly taken wrong words and deeds on issues involving China's core interests and major concerns, taking provocative and confrontational actions. This is the root cause of the current difficult situation in China-Australia relations. Beijing has authored a 14-point memo explaining to Australia how to behave in order to have more successful trade relations. It includes no more criticism of China with regards to COVID, as well as support for China's embattled telecom equipment maker Huawei. Australia finds itself between a rock and a hard place. After all, 40% of the country's exports are to China. As, uh, you know, as offensive, but let's not take this seriously. And um, today we have David Fox with us. Uh, thank you for joining us, David. It's a great pleasure to have you. Pleasure. Mm. Great, great, great. Uh, so, David, if you don't mind, could you please give uh, everyone a bit of some detail of uh, where you're from and who you are and, and what you do? Right. Well, I currently live here in Bendigo in Victoria, Australia, uh, central Victoria. It, uh, it's actually home of uh, right in the middle of it's an historical area of, uh, of the gold fields, um, the great gold rushes of the 1850s. It's also where the birthplace of the Goldfields rebellions happened during that time. Uh, against a very severe tax imposed by a colonial government. And there was actually under the guise of no representation without, oh, sorry, no taxation without representation, interesting enough. No, it's quite an historical area. Um, Bendigo itself, just on that, it's actually a German-designed building. There's a lot of Germans came out in the 1850s after the 1848 revolutions. Um, a lot of them fought alongside Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and a lot of German uh, clubs um, were created here in Bendigo and also in Ballarat, which is over an hour away, and throughout the goldfield. So even if you go to a cemetery here, you'll find a large Lutheran section. Um, and predominantly, it, it, it was a very big, predominantly German uh, population right through here. So 
that it, it's quite interesting in the rebellions we had here, people think, well, just all British or even just Irish. Yes, you had Irish rebels, you had English Chartists, you had uh, Italian revolutionaries, German revolutionaries, Spanish, uh, um, even had Americans, black Americans here. It's quite a mixed match. And even the Chinese that came to the gold fields um, at that time were actually people fleeing um, British um, imperialism in China at the time because a lot of them fought in the Boxer Rebellion mm. of both the 1800s of the, of the two Boxer Rebellions. Um, a lot of them came out during that time as well. Uh, and obviously, uh, upon hindsight, and hindsight's excellent here, um, I wish there was actually um, a lot more common unity quite across all those people and the differences to a side and include, and plus add the indigenous people here. It would have been one hell of a, one hell of an army, um, probably an historical one. I think it would have been if only they just knew back then instead of just you know, up to those immediate prejudices. But uh, my, my background, so I'm actually a boilermaker. Um, and that's my trade background. I yeah, did a four-year apprenticeship. Um, and that's my trade background. Um, I, how I came my, my politics as well, it was an involvement over time. I think ever since I was um, a young boy, I thought I had a sense of some sort of social justice and something was wrong. I couldn't quite pin it uh, right throughout my life. I mean, you know, I don't know what it was. I looked at all sorts of politics and lean here, lean there, didn't know what it was. But... Um, and but fortunately, I mean, through the through the union, because when I was an apprentice, I joined up my, my respective union. I'm still a member today, um, and started to learn a little bit more about working class politics through there, left wing politics, um, although more social democratic in some aspect. But there was almost still former socialist politics still taught for our, our union. Um, but and by the time I got more heavily involved over uh, the time, especially after my apprenticeship, I involved in a couple of campaigns, both trying to stop a uranium mine in, a, in Kakadu National Park back in 1998. It's a World Heritage Area. And at least the good news of that, and then years later, you know, it never went ahead. It was stopped and then we did. So there was a very big uh, mm. win for that one. Um, it was a very culturally significant area for the local in, uh, people up there, for the first people up there. Now, uh, but when I came in, just back to Sydney, I was living in Sydney, came back there. Uh, I caught up with many people, but uh, no, actually, I like to make the name. I actually met a couple of very good people through uh, an organisation called the Shorter Workweek Network, and that was Wayne Saunter and John Bailey, and um, very two good comrades and still good close friends of mine today. Uh, but John was a member of the CPA at the time. I don't think Wayne wasn't. Um, I wasn't. I was actually in the Greens at the time. Um, interesting, and I'll tell you a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting because, well, I'll go on to that. New South Wales Greens is different from a lot of other Greens because it actually had its foundations in the uh, in the old left-wing trade union movement, um, the social justice and protection, protection of our urban environment and urban heritage, which back in the early 70s was actually uh, spearheaded by um, unions such as the Builders Labourers Federation, the Federated Engine Drivers and Firemen's Association, that, so they protected a lot of urban bushland and suburbs and that from demolition. They were working class, a lot of historical. The suburbs, example, is the Rocks in Sydney. Um, if you've been to Sydney, uh, you obviously see the Harbour Bridge, the Opera House, the City Wall. The Rocks is right just at the base of the Harbour Bridge there, very historical part of Sydney. And that was, that was all going to be de um, demolished, uh, completely demolished and just have high-rise through there. So it was uh, uh, through, with the residents 
um, approaching the Builders Labourers Federation. Um, yeah, they put an entire what they call a green ban. So that's where it had all its roots in. And there, it wasn't so much in the forests and blockading loggers and etc. It was actually quite different. So, and by the time I joined, there was a lot of people leaving the Australian Labor Party, which traditionally the unions did fine, but it was so neoliberal, so anti-working class. A lot of people were disillusioned. So a lot of people were coming in joining the, the Greens at the time. Um, so, and you had the likes of Senator uh, or Lee Rhiannon, who was an upper house member in New South Wales and became a senator. Um, she had her, she had her roots historically in the communist movement as well. So it was quite a, yeah, it, you know, okay, how, how can I say it's quite a contradiction? What a hotbed. Um, I was in that for a few years, and uh, when I moved to Western Australia uh, for work, because at the time when I was, uh, the Sydney Olympic boom was over, um, there was a few small jobs, but really to get something consistent, I, I moved to Western Australia because uh, a lot of the mining boom we had kicked off, and I was involved um, in a lot of that both. And... But during all that time, I was still quite heavily involved in my union, uh, both as a shop steward uh, and also its politics as well, but also two general social issues as well. Um, but obviously, a lot of their times, a lot of my time took up after hours on weekends, a lot of a lot of issues. So, but I quite enjoyed it. And when I went to Western Australia, I, I was walking into a job there. I, I, I didn't take long for me to become a shop steward again mm. and representing workers. Um, at that time, I joined the Communist Party. Um, I was and I was a consistent member for about eight years, I think. Uh, yeah, um, of the party, I think it was a natural uh, tradition. And uh, I have to admit, I met one, the founder of the party, uh, Vic Williams, was his name. He, he passed away, I think, in 2010, 2011. And uh, he was really the sound stuff. He, he taught me a lot as well. He was from the period of the 1930s. And he saw a lot, and he was just a walking encyclopedia of knowledge. I think at the end there, he was really rejuvenated that you know, some of us are actually catching on to the actual, uh, actually got it about Marxism and um, and trying to catch that populism again and working class mm-hmm. populism. I think that's where he wanted to go and grab that spirit um, of, of, of that period, 30s and 40s. So mm-hmm. he, played, he played a good influence as well and uh, through there. But when I left the CPA, I... But I had some, still some really good comrades in that in, in that party as well. Uh, went on and uh, still still quite politically active elsewhere. I became an organiser as well. Um, and for my union, I, I stepped up the markup and to do that. And it, that's been a that's been a good, been a big task in itself. It's certainly not like being a shop steward. It's <laughs> it's certainly tenfold. So I organised in both in Perth metropolitan area, the midwest of Western Australia, and three years in the Pilbara, um, which was our uh, guards. And then I, I was finished up for a while and had a little break, and I moved over to Melbourne. Um, and I was working as a boilermaker, and I was asked to come back on as an organiser again to help out in regional Victoria. And um, I haven't looked back since. It's been a lot. It's a really good branch of the union I'm in. I, for those of you the record, I'm uh, the union I am a member of and work for now as an organiser, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. It's an amalgamation. It's an amalgamation of the old metal workers union, food preservers, printers, um, and and vehicle builders. And um, yeah, so. It's certainly uh, a really good branch to be in too. The Victorian mm. branch, we're certainly uh, uh, making some good milestones in a lot of areas. I, I think last year, I think like with all unions, we we, we we copped a little hit with the COVID 
being as a lot of areas were in lockdown. But it was interesting uh, through that. The most in manufacturing, there's very few job losses, actually. It was actually picking up again. Um, and without going off two-track reunion organising, but it all actually dawned on the population of Australia here how Australia was exposed. When you exposed to having to realise we're such an import nation, in the 1970s, we, uh, 35% of the whole entire workforce was in manufacturing. Today, it's now only 8%, and we're a highly import-dependent country. Uh, we do export raw commodities such as iron ore and 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 a few other things, but well, a lot of our stuff is imported. So COVID-19, in some aspect, actually uh, showed how vulnerable Australia is. And uh, We're an island co- continent nation, and we're dependent on shipping. And the question is now, why aren't we manufacturing our own and being a lot more self-reliant here? Because anything could happen uh, any time now. And, and, and also, too, just what's recently, uh, Exxon Valdez, oh, Exxon Mobil, sorry, uh, announced uh, they're closing the Altona oil refinery in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And the problem is now we've only got two active oil refineries uh, still trying to produce some fuel, but we're, a lot of it will be imported. And now we've only got two weeks' worth of fuel reserve if something happens, and that will be all prioritised. So you could just imagine Australia will come to a screaming halt uh, if something does happen to our shipping and all that. And, and, if, and if we're so unceremoniously dragged into a US imperial war... Nice. Um, yeah, you could just see what happens. It'll be just a whole system now. Nice. Nice. Uh, so it, it, it's a very hot discussion now, um, and, that, and I think it's a good um, boosting one. But you originally asked before about union organising as well yes. in, in Australia. It is exceptionally hard. It's not easy like it was back in the 70s uh, and right up through to the mid-80s. Uh, there's a lot of legislation uh, against unions, um, restraining unions, but... Um, ability to, to actually perform as, and to represent workers. Yeah, it's certainly uh, over trying to enter into a workplace if you want to have a general discussion with potential members and, and, and members as well. There's You have to give 24 hours notice, a minimum 24 hours notice to the company. Uh, there's also a lot of penalties towards workers if they take an, in, uh, what they call unlawful industrial action, if it's not legal. Uh, and uh, they could be up to fines, significant fines, to ten to twenty thousand dollars if uh, if they if they actually perceived to be unlawful. Um, that's why actually the bourgeoisie in this country sounded well. One way to sort of try and jail workers and that is to cripple people financially. And unions can also be up against massive fines too if they organise secondary boycott um, or you know go out in support of other other claims that's not within a, a particular type of uh, workplace um, negotiations. We do have a part of legislation called protected industrial action. I think it's the only country in the world that ever came up with that term where we can only go on strike uh, for, to pursue a particular claim during negotiations as long as we've been using good faith bargaining all the way. Um, mm. Now, um, yeah, so there's a lot of... There's a lot of restraints put on unions. Uh, there was also a deliberate push on either. Okay, that's back on. Sorry, carry on where, where you were. I think you were talking. You, that's you, more, you just finished talking right. about productive, protected industrial action. Yes, that's right. And look, we, we, we didn't just happen to get to this situation overnight. It, it was a long process. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain this in previous videos myself. But back in the late 60s, there was uh, what we call the penal uh, provisions in, or penal code. And that was to penalise in, in unions to taking all types of strike action, supporting each other. 
But there were, during that period of the 60s, there was, a, there was an actual strategic campaign to build up to a crescendo to basically organise workers to break the law, basically, to make them redundant. And it was triggered off by the jailing of the Secretary of the Tramways Union, uh, Clary O'Shea. Uh, mm-hmm. That was the trigger. And basically, that was the every time in Australia's Australian history that we came close to a general strike, a national mm-hmm. general strike. Uh, millions of workers went out, even against some of the conservative leaderships, uh, conservative union leaderships they had in some unions uh, who didn't want to participate. The unions went, stuff you, we're going out anyway, um, and they did. And, and he was released to it a few days later. Um, and But basically out of that, the laws were made redundant. They were still there on the statute books. But what through workers' power like that, as laws were redundant, the, the, the capitalist class didn't know what to do. They couldn't use them anymore. And so that really, uh, from there on, it set off for the 1970s, this massive wages growth, the expansion of unions even more. I think there's all sorts of figures. I'm led to believe, actually, uh, the union movement grew up to be about 75 to 80% of the whole work working class and working people in this country. And it was actually in the whole entire world, it was a jewel in the crown. Especially for the communist movement here as well. Um, so the bourgeoisie knew that. Um, they knew that they got a problem here. And but it started off in the late 70s when they first, uh, when the Fraser government um, introduced the secondary boycott provisions of the Trade Practices Act um, that's to try and prevent unions from supporting each other, even though they weren't involved. Um, that will allow them the fines. But what really accentuated it was the election of Bob Hawke and, um, of the Australian Labor Party. And what he did um, is basically came uh, through them and through some leaderships of the ACTU, um, the Australian Council of Trade Unions and, and some trade unions, came up with uh, what we call the Prices and Incomes Award, um, Accord. Sorry, prices and incomes accord. And that was basically to stop unions pursuing claims and allow them to trade off or stop doing wage claims, but allow at the same time, we'll, we'll give you certain provisions like superannuation, guaranteed superannuation, we'll give you Medicare. We're supposed to have the 35-hour week by the mid-1980s, and that never, that never went. Uh, that, yeah. that never made any appearance. Some places had it, but not many. Um, and we're supposed to have all these other great conditions, but never eventuated. And so, in fact, what we saw was decline in wages growth, the value of our wages collapsing and profits increasing again. And also, too, it was the transfer of power from the workers um, back into not um, back into both the um, both the employers. You saw this massive, well, as it was um, taking a wealth by the bourgeoisie, but also what we saw at the time the, the crippling of union power in, in this country uh, and what really really hurt it that most was the recession of the late 1980s early 90s um paul keating who became prime minister after Bob famously, famously said the recession we had to have um and anyway that and a lot of industries as well started then by late 80s um started to move offshore uh, i remember when i first came into the workforce and when I actually started my apprenticeship, you'd hear stories all over, big plant closures, everything shutting down, um, machinery put on the back of trucks, sent to port and shipped offshore, their respective countries, all and all this uh, free trade. Um, to me, there's nothing free about it at all. It's just how to find how to exploit workers further in in, um, in aura countries. But we see in everything we lost. And that also helped, uh, uh, they also assisted the decrease in union power, union density as well in the workforce. 
So by the time um, the Conservative Prime Minister John Howard was elected in, in 1996, the union movement size from, from the 1970s was reduced anywhere between close to about 25%. Um, and today, unfortunately, it's about 15% of the whole workforce. Um, and where it's, it is a tragedy because where we once were, where we could have gone, as to where we are now. And unfortunately, a lot of younger generations don't understand what unions are, what their rights at work are. Uh, you know, and even though, just those basic things, even though it's within a capitalist um, framework, but they, they don't even know that. They don't mm-hmm. understand the importance of collectively, you know, organising in a union to fight for, to achieve their aims. Um, just the basic, uh, just those basic principles, because they're taught about individualism in school and there and and a very whitewashed history as well. So, as I said, for all for officials of unions, we are certainly up against a lot of laws, uh, be it the Registered Organisations Commission, the Australian Building and, and Construction Commission, which is like a Gestapo, directed, set up by big business and government directed towards the building unions. Uh, the Registered Organisations Commission, they, they just scrupulise every last bit of paperwork um, if you got the, if you know, basically down to a spelling mistake, they don't even join it. It's just really, it's really um, some draconian. Uh, and, and the penal provisions against workers, uh, they are uh, against workers so they can stop them from trying to achieive their aims further. We're you know, crippling with massive fines. I mean, for anyone working class, regardless if they're well paid or low paid, I mean, $20,000 fine, that is. That is a lot of money. Money. So that's where where we're up against at the moment. And at the moment, as we're speaking, there's further industrial legislation um, at the moment. It's gone to a Senate inquiry here. Um, The Scott Morrison government uh, tabled some legislation just before Christmas, um, which was a ploy of them um, to try and ram through the lower house and now the House of Representatives. Now it's gone to the Senate to have a look at um, to make inquiries, and there's all these submissions at the moment. But the most and the thing is, this is also to, about the ability to mobilise again. Um, and it certainly is under these difficult times to try and mobilise. And I think they've used the COVID-19 as a great time to try and ram through legislation that will further reduce the rights and conditions of a lot of workers there, further casualise the workforce. Um, so you're pretty much left in precarious employment. Um, that's a very big one as well. They've actually, uh, there was an, actually another important piece that's gone right out of my head at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it certainly is, uh, oh, that's right, yeah, the, 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 to stop, especially workers in the construction industry, that if uh, a particular agreement expires, they can allow them to mobilise and properly organise, even under law, to pursue a, a set of claims. They want to stop that. They just basically say, no, this is the terms and conditions for the entire project worth over $250 million. They don't want you to achieve maybe a shorter work roster. Uh, not, we'll just put pay to a side, but I mean, always important, but maybe other certain rights and conditions as well. So basically, they just dictated the terms and conditions when they signed that bit of paper um, to go and start sign a project. That's sort of the difficulties we have at the moment. Um, I mean, look, I'm hopeful. I mean, look, it's always good to have that. I you know, despite what's thrown of us, I mean, I think the I think the most encouragement now for younger people, and I think for all of us, um, are politically active is encourage uh, more rank and file activism again in unions, and I think that's the important thing. Not just wait for the next great union leader to come along and save the day, 
I think what we have to do is actually start re-engaging re with the workers again, figuring that they have the power. And I'm, I think that in Australia here, the working class itself uh, doesn't have the confidence in itself to take it on. And that's what I've noticed around even though those places that are unionised, but even that, they'll, they'll only move to a certain level. Um, I think it's it's also the lack of confidence that's been deliberately done over the years. I remember when I was a boy, but even when I first young boy, but when I, when I uh, started in um, in the workforce, there was that confidence still in the working class. It's like, we don't care, you know, whatever, we're out, you know, whatever. And then it's now like, oh, you know, are we going to win? Are we going to mm -hmm. do this? And, uh, it, and it was never been, it was... In the old days, it was never mind the consequences. We're out, you know. And now it's like, oh, trying to weigh up: Are we going to win? Are we going to achieve? Can't you do something even further? Even though yeah. legally you've done everything you possibly can, and I said, guys, it's up to you. At the end of the day, they just haven't. Once the people say the collective con consciousness, yes, that's part of it, but also the confidence. Come on, guys, you really need to step up the mark, you know. Yeah, um, and that's and that, that's it's a it certainly is a quarter. Quite a um, quite a quite um, a task to try and trying to try to get them to achieve. Sometimes it is not; it's probably strategic not to take the system on at the time or boss on because especially if the company is uh, not doing too well, or you know where the employer has probably got an advantage. Okay, we've managed to achieve this as long as we haven't lost anything. Well, um, you know, at least we've improved slightly. We can then also move ourselves further on. Look. That's fallback tactics and strategy uh, overall, but that's what I've noticed about trying to organise workers here in the country, in the skin, in in Australia. It's just the lack of confidence a lot of them have um, for, for out, and that's it's been deliberately done. Now, as I understand too, workers in the country, a lot of them are trying to pay off a mortgage now. They're consistently in debt. Uh, right. So the fear of losing your house, yeah. Look, uh, in Australia here, I mean, you're basically three three mortgages. Um, yeah, yeah, your three. Uh, what was it called? Foreclosures. Or if you can't pay your debts, or your three mortgages off from paying from losing your house. Uh, right. I mean, right. Yeah, three mortgage repayments. That's the word. Three mortgage yeah. so that puts a lot of fire under everyone's feet to, uh, to consider then if they want to actually go on strike or or, yes, risk, exactly. or risk anything. Yeah. So the debt debt is obviously another role to it. Yeah. I mean, as you've covered covered a lot of ground there. Actually, I've, I've been very intrigued. I didn't know that unionisation was such a it was so high. Uh, in in Australia, so you said it was seventy five to eighty percent in in the in the sixties, uh, and sort of. Yep. I guess you could also. Uh, it, it seems to me that there's a, a, a strong relationship with the deindustrialization uh, and deunionization seem to follow the same path. So uh, you mentioned that manufacturing in the so in the two thousands it came down to about fifteen percent or, or manufacturing exports. And uh, yeah, now it's no, no. That's um, all. That was union organisation manufacturing. I think about the, uh, in the nineteen seventies was about thirty five percent of the workforce. It's now down to eight percent. Eight percent. That was it. So thirty five to eight yeah. percent. So yeah, as you mentioned, with COVID exposing the weakness and only having two weeks of fuel supply uh, in the country, so manufacturing declined, and so did unionisation. Uh, but obviously. Yes. As you mentioned, lots of bureaucracy from the government that also uh, you know, tied up unions and made them unable to act. Um, yeah. Just a, a quick one while we're on that topic. Um, uh, there's a story, uh, I'm sure this is not just from the UK, but it's happened all around the world, is the story of the zero-hour contract. So, um, oh, and also uh, where, um, let's say, 
there's a big uh, skyscraper in London and they use a cleaning company. They, they outsource their cleaning to these cleaning firms and these people, the, the cleaners in the cleaning firm are in um, zero hour contracts. They go to the building, they clean and all of a sudden they decide that they're not happy with something. So they decide to strike or decide to take some action against uh, their company. Uh, and all that happens is that the the skyscraper, the, the managers of the building, simply just switch companies. They just use a different uh, contractor company. And so the, the unionized action is, is almost uh, cut off in that sense. Is that something that happens in Australia too? Or, and what are your yes. thoughts on that kind of stuff? Well, that, that, that's not surprising to me. That's very, it's not so dissimilar here. We don't have the zero contracts legislation as such. That, uh, obviously, uh, they a lot of uh, clean, like those particularly cleaning and a lot of those low-paid top jobs are outsourced a lot uh, to scrupulous labour hire. Uh, so we do have a, we have, I don't know if you've, have a, you've heard what the term labour hire, where basically the employer doesn't employ anyone directly. He will bring up uh, some company, can you supply us X amount of workers? Uh, no problem. That's a very cutthroat industry as well. Uh, workers are not paid correctly or um, and like that, but if they cannot provide the employer, they can ring up someone else and bring them in. But he's not obliged. Then um, basically, to, for them, they don't feel they're obliged to any responsibility. We've given the company X amount of money to feed. <laughs> um, sorry, Karen, from where you were. So, where was I? Uh, yeah, it's about labour hire, and the, so it's not it's not so dissimilar um, as, so, as such, and. Uh, we also find a lot of contracting out as well of um, services. Um, actually, during this COVID-19, it showed you um, particularly where people had to quarantine. That was all contracted out to um, low-paid service providers um, that weren't properly trained, um, hence why, especially in Victoria here, there was that huge um, number of cases we had um, last year. Uh, that was just one example. And just to actually remark on the cleaning services side, uh, where they are one of the lowest paid in this country. And the union that covers them is United Workers Union. Um, exceptionally, very, they're really doing some good work there um, to organise these workers. But the what actually was interesting a few years ago, myself and a few other organisers, when, this is when I was in the Pilbara, we were actually uh, uh, we were sent on a, um, a short course. I was running like a two-hour course. We met with these couple of women that, that were actually talking about human trafficking. And when when the term human trafficking is used, people think, yeah, uh, prostitution, legal mm -hmm. prostitution, selling women off, all that. But what actually it also covers is also um, also low paid jobs such as and services such as cleaning. And what they actually said to us, a lot of cleaners, you see them in uh, shopping centres, uh, supermarkets, maybe, but mainly shopping centres, other places like office blocks and that. Yeah. They could have actually been easily um, trafficked here as well and we've got a scheme called a visa visa worker system uh, traditionally known as the 457 visa system now it's basically if an employer cannot source any skilled labor anymore is exhausted all avenues then you can apply for a, a visa system with our workers to come in temporarily uh, to fulfill that role and it has to sponsor them but also too there's other type uh, types of visa works like 417 and there's one especially for the agricultural sector where they come in, and it's very low-paid sectors. And what happens, this gives the ability of organised crime to you come in uh, and do that. Now, they might even set register a company 
under an unscrupulous, you know, unscrupulous company, have a registered, make it look legal, uh, promise these workers everything. Um, and so they come here, they'll have their passports probably seized off them um, and other documentation, and they say, right, off to work you go. Uh, they're probably, they live in a lot of substandard uh, accommodation as well. We've, we've, there's been in cases where they found like 30 people in one house, um, you know, and they're all living on top of each other, cramped conditions. Um, and if they generally speak up about something, the main concern for them is, yes, and immigration will step in, but usually they're just fine put on the first plane back out of here without any proper justice or recall. Um, yeah, but it's also, too, they're worried about their families overseas because if, if organised crime's involved, the threats there for their harm to their family as well is, is quite a big concern. So they're, they're actually very reluctant to speak out. Um, it's like when, when we were told about this, like if you walk up to one of them, you might think something, start talking to try and extract information. They probably don't want to really talk much, they'll smile, say hello and keep working. Yeah. Um, it's because they, they could possibly have been trafficked here. And the fear of not only just losing their job, but the fear of um, reprisals against them and their family is huge. It is huge. Um, so, and people, when I've brought this up with people in this country, they go, oh my God, really? In this, I'm shocked. Well, actually, so stop being shocked because we're not, Australia is not immune to any other country around the world to all this. Um, you know, we're, we're not this sort of special uh, exception to the exception to the whole entire world. Where um, this is uh, this is real, and this is what happens. Um, so, it certainly uh, and trying to and long way trying to organise them. It, it certainly is a lot harder to do. So, you'd really have to sort of meet them after hours and. You know, and a lot of migrant workers we've always had to always talk about and um, I meet them after hours or in a location where they're not seen. And actually, it's also trying to develop trust as well. I know we're, um, and that's an important one, but especially where English is not their first language, it's certainly a lot harder and it's quite challenging as well. But, yeah, um, just how much mercy they are both to an employer and to the organisations uh, they've been brought out to and, and, and the government authorities, it's... It's certainly that, that that's what they're up against uh, uh, big time. So it certainly is an issue here, um, yeah. and that's sort of uh, in the, in that field. But yeah, with the uh, going back to those zero contracts thing, that's basically we've, we we haven't got legislate. It's as I said, it's not so dissimilar here. We don't call it zero contracts, but basically they could just cut you out. And a lot of these workers too in these industries you mentioned. Um, also very casualised, so they don't even have to, the company doesn't even have to lose the job. They just tap them on the shoulder, just look, you're no longer required. That's it. Yeah. That's no it, longer yeah. required, just that's it. And they and they they got no recourse to try and challenge it. So if they happen to be trying to organise or something, no, we're, we're going a little bit low, you're no longer required at the moment. Give us a call in a week or two, and no doubt they're guaranteed they won't get a job again with that particular company. They're just, oh, look, we're not doing too well, even though they'll just have someone else come along and fill the role. Yeah, yeah, that, that certainly is, um, I mean, I didn't realise the, the extent of the human traffic element of the do, which makes it even more um, obvious as to why unionisation of particularly the, the, the most vulnerable and least paid workers is, is vital because it opens the door to this kind of stuff, um, mm. it's kind of super exploitation in a sense. Um, <clears throat> uh, so you, you've obviously given us a good history of the, 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 the unions in Australia uh, the sixties, seventies, and and to modern times as well. Um, and obviously, Australia is a, a former colony; it's a part of the Commonwealth. Um, yeah. 
as, as some of us will know, uh, it was where, where the UK, where Britain sent lots of prisoners. Um, but in terms of, you've mentioned uh, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. So is it um, essentially a mimic or very similar to the way that the UK, UK politics works in that sense? And particularly then, do the unions ally themselves with the Labour Party in, um, in, in, in Australia too, in the same way they do in the UK? Oh, well, look, for the audience, let's bring us up to speed. Currently, the Conservative Party we have here in, in Australia is called the Liberal Party. It's an ironic name. But okay. The Liberal Party was a coalition of parties originally that formed the Liberal Party, they were Conservative, and also they're in coalition with another party called the National Party, which is more so the rule for the farm and big agribusiness um, that they represent. <laughs> so they form a Liberal National Coalition or party. On the other one, it's the Australian Labor Party, uh, which forms the two main parties here in Australia, as they call it, the two, per, two preferred parties. And now, historically, the Australian Labor Party is a little bit different uh, historical roots compared to the British Labor Party. Uh, the Australian Labor Party was founded on a lot of the great uh, union strikes of the 1890s, where the Shearer strikes, uh, the maritime strikes, and some mining strikes as well. Um, through that. Now, back then, there was a lot of militancy in that, but at the time, and it was quite a radical thought, amongst those uh, unions and those workers involved, we need a, we need to have a representational voice in Parliament. Um, and that's where that thought came about. And during that time, it was the height of the Second International as well, and a lot of social democratic parties or socialist parties were being formed throughout Europe and, um, and obviously in America. So it, it was for Australia um, when it was, and it was still when it was still the colonies. Um, it wasn't the actual Commonwealth of Australia at the time. It was quite a radical thing. I mean, I, I've mentioned that to some comrades out there. They go, "What?" I, I said, "Well, it was because workers didn't have a party. They tended to look towards the old world liberals uh, at the time, but even that, they weren't really that good. So to represent them, so that's what they did. And they and they formed uh, various. Uh, local social democratic clubs, labour clubs, uh, and ranches to venture, and 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 then the first colonial governments they managed to elect some members into into part into the local uh, colonial parliaments. Uh, and during the time of the 1890s, there was a big push to form Australia as a federation. Um, and the trade union movement was behind that. You had the intercolonial trade union congresses, and and the formation of the Australian Labor Party grew out of that. Um, now, it was a mix-mash party. It wasn't an actual revolutionary party by any means. There were socialists in it and there were certainly some early Marxists in it. And understand, too, for Australia, no-one would have heard about Lenin back then. You know, but maybe if you're in Europe, yeah, you would have met Lenin during the Second International, but here in Australia, not. not. So you would have had limited information like from Marx and Engels, even, dare say, Karl Kartsky. Uh, had the information, you know, so it was very little understanding about it. So, but they did uh, the one thing they said they needed a party, so that's what they formed. But what happened became just a parliamentary party, and what happened uh, through that, and it was through consistent a uh, lot of struggles. But how to win concessions out of the capitalist party? And interesting, the time of the growth of the Labor Party, the formation it was the early births. It's also to understand as well uh, how capitalism came into being into this country as well. Um, the setting up of industries. There was a book I read called Communism in Australia by E.F. Hill. I mean, I didn't entirely agree with all his God tests, but he did a very good, interesting analysis of capitalism in this country. Mm -hmm. And during that time, because nothing's independent of each other, nothing's separate. 
So you had the starting of the Labor Party around 19, uh, the 1890s and formated it, which on 1901 constituted itself as the Australian Labor Party, but also the growing capitalism in this country. You know, we still had state-based industries, state-controlled mm. industries, but that wasn't socialism. It was there to help develop capitalism further. I mean, Australia could not, um, even after 1901 when we federated, could was not allowed to produce its own steel. Uh, and it's only World War One exposed Australia. We actually had still had to get permission from Britain, from the Privy Council, to make our own steel. Really? So, okay. Yeah. And then in uh, the end of World War One, we managed to start uh, start our own making our own steel industries. And because Australia at the time, when it federated, it was there basically basically to administer British capital, uh, because the colonial governments put tariffs on each other for goods transferring, you know, say, for example, between New South Wales and Victoria and vice versa. Then it was a pain. It was really causing a, causing a lot of mercantile traders a pain, yes. pain extra, and and how, how to make it fluid. And so it, it was basically thought, well, look, okay, yep, form the Australian uh, Australian uh, Parliament or Australian Government instead of oversee the Ministry of British Capital. We still had to answer with Britain. If Britain went to war, we have to go for it. And... Yeah, so there was, and it was only up until about the late 1980s. There were certain cases still had to go to the Privy Council in the UK. We uh, until that was actually put to a hand by Bob Hawke and Paul Keating when they were Prime Ministers. That now it all goes to the High Court now, uh, or Supreme Court here in Australia, um, standing on our feet. I mean, even our flag you see it to this day. It's got the Union yes. Jack in the corner. Um, okay. just, 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 just to find the further. So um, obviously, in the older colonial relationship. Like you mentioned, uh, Australia was not allowed to make its own steel, I assume, to protect uh, the British steel industry. Exactly. Uh, and then you say, you say with tariffs uh, between, between different provinces. But um, so on certain things, uh, Australia would have to apply to the Privy Council in order to execute something. And that Privy Council being a, a UK body, a, a British body. And, and now that's changed and yeah. it has to apply, apply to the High Court. The UK High Court or the Australian no, High Court? No, Australian High Court. Okay, okay. So, 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 uh, what, what things would the Australian? What things would would go to the High Court? What kind of things? What kind of decisions would have to be decided whether Australia is allowed to do it? What, what kind of things have gone to the High Court? Oh, that that, that, that could be a lot of things. That could be like a legislation um, that has been put forth. It might have been passed. That can actually be challenged. Um, mm -hmm. for, um also. Um, also, to get legislation, and also if we uh, a certain, and it's got to be within a constitutional thing. But any type of law, constitution, before it had to be interpreted by the Privy Council. So just to get that control uh, of our own affairs, so um, the government could make, or it happened to be a legal, it might be a legal uh, decision from a judge as well. Um, you might, it could be anything. But I'll, I'll use industrial legislation. Um, sure, 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 sure. Amount of industrial issues that we've had gone to the High Court. Uh, we've gone through the various courts, from the industrial uh, courts through to the federal circuit court, through up to the high court, to have decisions ratified and 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 recognised by law, which unless it's changed by parliament, uh, that years ago it would have had to go it went up to the privy council. Interesting enough, so and, and it, it it comes to show. And just on that for the for the viewers and, and all the audience. Uh, Understand, our national anthem for many years was God Save the Queen. Right. And we all know pretty subjects still. Yeah, uh, or colonial subjects. Even, even though they still had that term. Uh, yeah, the Queen's or the King's um, um, subjects here. And 
in the early 70s with the election of the Whitlam Labor government. He changed it to Advance Australia Fair. After the sacking of, oh, if we got time, I could talk about that, but he got, uh, I called the coup against him, but it was the sacking by the Governor-General, John Kerr. Um, the Fraser government reintroduced God Save the Queen again, and it's until Bob Hawke uh, became his own Prime Minister that it was changed back to uh, Vance Australia Fair. Um, and so basically it was a for, it was a struggle for even having our own national identity uh, as well because, uh, well, you know, the old saying, what are we, South Sea yeah, South Sea Poms or, uh, you know, are we Little Britain down, down under? And, and uh, it's not that we actually wanted to have our own sense of identity. And I was... You look at it at the 60s and 70s and right through the 80s, there was sort of like this unconscious struggle to have our own identity to uh, move away from it. We looked at, you know, it, yeah, we just looked at how we went about things and even for a while there, forming a, uh, we wanted to be a republic, definitely um, have our own different flag um, and there's quite a history to that as well. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's not that's the struggle for a public is not as huge as what it was back then. But um, it it certainly and certainly it was uh, it was like a you know for years. You know, I mean, for us to sing "God Save the Queen," I mean, it would have been public embarrassing. You know, I thought, what what the hell? <laughs> yeah. It's actually interesting when the Barmy Army comes over here for uh, to support the English cricket team. They always yell out, "Get your flag again! Get our flag off your flag!" <laughs> so we're sort of reminded to move on. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, that, that's also an interesting thing that we should discuss. Is um, it's the um, obviously the immigration question, uh, and um, mm. I mean, yes, uh, Australia. I guess we could say is is a settler. Uh, a nation, historically speaking, the same way that America is, and and, and uh, sort of white South Africa is. Um, you know, it's 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 um, people that came, and very similar to South Africa for a, for a gold rush, particularly as what you mentioned earlier, where you are at least. Um, I know that also Australia has got a big mining mining industry too. Um, uh, if you'd like to just give us a bit of a uh, you know history of the, of the waves of immigration that that sort of um, that layered that uh, that Australian uh, image and how it looks today. Yeah, well, look, we've touched on this before. I mean, the first wave of the immigrants were um, um, were um, bonded labour or imprisoned labour uh, for crimes to just some stealing a loaf of bread because you were starving. Because they understand the conditions of Britain at the time were just horrible for working class people. You lived in dark, dank, horrible conditions. You know, you you you're exposed to diseases and viruses. Oh, it was horrible uh, right. place to be. Uh, but obviously, you, you know, if you didn't work, you starved. Basically, you had to beg, uh, and obviously, you know, and you basically whatever coin you received, it was only just enough to get your meal or board for the night. Um, you know, so people were malnourished. Uh, life expectancy for working class people were probably if you lived into your thirties, you did well, um, basically. But yeah, that was it. It was life expectancy for a lot of them were, uh, yeah, it wasn't very high at all. So. Mm. Basically, a lot of people did go commit a form of crime. You know, obviously, they have to survive. Um, That's court, right. So back then, anything from stealing a loaf of bread or killing someone's sheep or whatever to sustain yourself was a hanging offence. But and or you know, a long time in the British prison system. So what they did, they had to realise. Well, we've got to overcrowd them, but they can use this as also at the same time. They had another problem. They had to protect the British East India Company um, and that and protect British imperial interests. 
and then they know about this southern land that uh, James Cook and many other empires and a lot of uh, people knew about for thousands of years. So, I mean, it goes right back to the Chinese used to trade off their north coast. The Indonesians knew about it. Many people did uh, trade off it. So um, to go and establish a colony, but based off prison labour... Uh, The, the penal, yeah. The penal so when um, when the first fleet came in um, into the Sydney uh, harbour and established the penal colony at the time, uh, obviously that that was the whole. But the the whole concept behind that was actually to do establish a British outpost to protect British imperial interests and further expand it as well. At the time, that was and National Day celebrated on the twenty sixth of January, uh, which was the day the uh, penal colony was established. Now, there's a lot of debate around that. I won't go to it for, and I call it a lot of us call it Invasion Day because the Indigenous people thought well, that's the day that started for them. Well, that's uh, and there's a lot of debate about that for Australian society. Some people say don't need to change. There's a lot of big further support now to change the date for obvious reasons, and like I've said, for obvious reasons, it wasn't. A, it, they didn't establish a nation on that day. They established a British colonial outpost, penal outpost to to protect its interests and yeah. to protect like the British East India Company, um, etc. Because they needed to. Because Britain was at war with France, and I believe that Russia at the time as well. Um, that was a war with pretty much practically everybody, <laughs> as it does in expanded <laughs> territories. And so they, that way they, they had to establish these outposts. And, of course, they claimed all the, well, most at the time, the east coast of Australia um, to, uh, for itself. Now, obviously, from then on, through as as expanded, went through the inland, there was actually the big, uh, there was been a lot of, um, uh, massacres and wars with the indigenous people here, the first people, first nations, um, and it was they were fighting a war of re- resistance, you know, against uh, this where's this new colonial power that's come into their land, that land that they've been they've been inhabited and occupied for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years, um, and they've lived in quite in harmony with the land as well. Uh, and yeah, so all of a sudden their whole life has just been disrupted, and now they've been exposed to do diseases they've never been exposed to, wiped out through that, but also massacred as well. Um, so there was it was like you know Britain declared a war on the indigenous people here uh, straight away, and that's why they always seen that um, you know as a as as an invasion because it was and it was never there was never no treaty signed with the indigenous people. There was no. Um, Unconditional terms of surrender. Now, none of that. It was just basically we're claiming it. That's it. And what the base, the British colonial authorities did, just grant land to uh, very scrupulous, um, obnoxious type people, such as the likes of uh, colonial figures like John MacArthur and that, who claimed a large amounts of land. Um, they were these type of people. And so were not did they purchase this land, or were they just granted the land? Sorry, just granted. Just given free land. Okay. Yeah. Given free land, and that's because uh, what happens, the colonial authorities recognise the land as uninhabited, and all they did is apply uh, for it. Here you go, you'll set this greater land. But my Jesus said the most, unscru- the most unscrupulous, most corrupt uh, people, they actually got the good land as well, the good uh, land for grazing and growing, mm. etc. And the idea was to grow food and supplies to the British Empire. 
And as a, as the as it started to expansion, people called settling. Well, a lot of people were brought here against their will. I will say that, Nastas, because I mean, one they they were brought here by prison labour, um, <laughs> and the second and third fleets that came over, a lot of them were Irish rebels um, because the Irish were fighting for their own, for well, fighting for their own country or free from a foreign ruler. Um, yes. That's just to put it as it, and they were rounded up and sent over here as well. Um, and well, so too, I do have a forebear that came over in the 1830s, um, a man named John Pomeroy. He was an English chartist, and a mm. lot of the English chartists were rounded up as well. Anyone who spoke against the crown, even if you criticise the crown, you were you know, basically arrested, you were trialled, and then sent to seven years hard labour in the Australian colonies at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it started to expand out. Uh, first, next it was Tasmania, then known as Van Diemen's Land, and then obviously into Victoria and started setting up all these other colonies over the, um, over the course of the time throughout the, uh, Just uh, the 1800s. Quick mm. question there. So uh, when did the... Uh, so obviously you've started... Saying, when did they start with the penal um, dispatches of, of, of working-class people to, to Australia? And when did it sort of end? Just so I can get an idea of the ending of the, of the sort of time... Frame. Oh, right. Well, they came out as what we turned the term convicts. Yes. Um, 1788, well, obviously a little bit earlier, it would have had to be trialled and sent to but you were, the first fleet came here in 1788, or arrived here in 1788. Uh-huh. Um, and from then on, and I think, I believe, the last convicts ever sent to Australia, and I think it might have been Western Australia, don't quote me, um, and that was the 1860s, mid-1860s. There was a very big push to stop prison labour. Um, as a movement actually stopped that. Um, for the people in that movement for many reasons, but people saw how horrid and unjust that was as well. Because even on the ships over here, you're locked consistently in chains or that consistently in one position all the time, mostly, most of the, most, most times of the day until you got in. A lot of people, though, those prisoners died as well on the right. way over. And then there were pretty horrible conditions on those ships. It's not like a luxury cruise we're on now. It, uh, right. it was small sailing ships. You're prone to seasickness. You're actually prone to actually being shipwrecked or drowning because of in violent storms. Uh, and you're prone to being flogged all the time for even just speaking out. Um, and that, and it was just real horror. And you're you're all cramped in there. It was hot and humid in those, or, or freezing cold in those holes. Uh, just completely brutal. Yeah, just complete brutality. Is what yeah. they then just dehumanisation of them um, as well. Um, so, you know, for someone who's just trying to feed themselves, just right. trying to get by, then this is where they wound up. It was just basically to degrade and dehumanise the person. So, the time they get up here, they can be, you can understand, I think, um, looking back now, I mean, people would say there'd be post traumatic syndrome right. uh, disorders, there'd be all this type yeah. of thing, and obviously. Yeah. Alcohol that was bought with us, or well, alcoholism was rife. It's uh, you know in this country it still is today. Alcoholism is a, a huge issue in our country, and along with drug use. But you know, it, it was a form of currency at one stage as well. Uh, rum was used, it. Um, and uh, but yeah, that's people are just way they how they found their getaway plans through that. So it, it was deplorable. Mm. Yeah, I just wanted, and then and once these. Uh, People arrived. Uh, were they granted? I mean, those, they, as you said earlier, these people would be colonial subjects, and I mean, the majority of them would then arrive and, and just then be told, "Okay, go find a job." 
or were they no. forced to work in a particular facility? Were they given land? What 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 happened to people? Yeah, once well, they well, they're brought over here as prison labour. Um, so they're put for forced uh, forced work. They were in chain gangs, like building roads um, or you know chopping down forests. Uh, they they tried to escape. They get rounded up. They'll get flogged, sent back to work, or shot or hung. Um, yeah, it was forced prison labour, um, and in a different environment uh, from what they and climate from what they were used to in the, in, in the UK. Understand uh, Australia's a different, complete, different climate. So when they arrived here, it would have been right in the middle of a summer. For Sydney, it'd especially be hot and humid as anything, like a subtropical, tropical climate. Not used to that. So the conditions for them would have been completely horrendous. And then left in balls and chains, mm. chained up in barracks all the time. With well, there were some free settlers that came with them, what they called the free settler. They yeah. were my really my specialists. There were they realised some convicts had specialist skills, but and some were pardoned. Um, but as long as that they could not go back to okay, so that because they, they might have had a particular skill, so they stayed. They might have had a blacksmith trade. They might have had. A, they might have been a baker. Or yeah. something, you know, um, um, and, that, and some well, they, they did finish their seven year service. Um, prison were granted small blots of land to develop further. That that was time to feed the colony because the colony had no food and had to rely on, um, you had to rely on the indigenous to find food and then actually start developing their own agri- small agriculture. So, some, yeah, to a extent, yeah, I can understand where some people see this third settler. Some people we were forced. He didn't want to be here. Right? And yeah, some, that's some, true. some did finish, uh, finish their sentences and went back to the UK too. They didn't want to yeah. hang around here. Mistake. So, Mistake. Yeah. I, I didn't, you know, really consider the extent of the how the prison uh, labour was used and actually how, what the role it played actually in the conditions. Actually, is quite, yeah. quite, quite horrendous. Actually, if you think about it, as you say, people that were in uh, probably if, if you think about the descriptions of, of Engels' um, conditions of the working class, eighteen forty four, eighteen forty five. You know, living in horrible hovels, uh, starving, yeah. not malnutrition, uh, and, and horrible working hours, committing a crime, and then being sent to Australia um, yeah. and, and by chain, in chains, and being flogged. Yeah. And, and just on that, and a lot of it was politically motivated to us. We had Irish rebels, English charters. It's interesting during the height of the war between uh, in, uh, Britain and France. Uh, we had at uh, one stage we had French Canadians brought over, um, over to Sydney and places like Canada Bay and all that's where they were barracked for a while. Um, we also had, well, and obviously then further on through the more freer settlers, but we had a lot of revolutionaries from Europe. So mm. and that, but that we'll talk a little bit about that later. But yeah. during those ones of bonded labour, a lot of it became political. So if you spoke against the crown or we happened to be an enemy of the crown. Um, you were sent here, mm. right? And that's so. Then, yeah, in terms of as 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 most countries uh, in, in the sort of eighteen hundreds and in, then going into the twentieth century, there are different waves of immigration depending on uh, the mm. different circumstances. So you've mentioned the gold rush earlier, um, yeah. and also I'm familiar. Then, obviously, even later uh, in the nineteen sixties and seventies, um, correct me if I'm wrong, in immigration of, of Lebanese people, of of Greek people, of Italians. Yes. Um, so very similar to America in the sense that you had waves of, of Irish, waves mm. of Italians, waves of, of different people from around the world. What, how did that play out in Australia? So after well, the, um, the, the penal sort of grand sort of big yeah. story, well, uh, what happens after that? Well, 1901, when we federated as a nation, obviously they still wanted to be, they, a lot of uh, the ruling class wanted to see us as, uh, Brit- as little Britain down under, you know, 
uh, British Australia. Um, they want to make sure we're, we're like the beacon of British Empire and all that. And, and it had its roots in the Australian Natives Association of the 1890s, 1880s um, to form a white Australia. And they believe it was the Deakin government. Don't quote me on that. Um, if someone might correct me on that, the Prime Minister Deakin introduced the white Australia policy. So only people from mainly Britain um, were allowed in, or English-speaking uh, white people were allowed in to, you know, uh, make this Britain, but also making sure that our know, goods, we were based, there was a ban on Chinese people coming here. A um, lot, there was this yellow peril, they called, uh, right. trying to whip up this national, national chauvinistic fever against them and anyone else is uh, and of course the indigenous uh, the first people weren't even recognized as citizens a lot of places even states recognized them as part of law and form because a lot of them were rounded up put on reserves because the land was taken from them um they were basically dehumanized as well they weren't recognized as such they were even given caste systems like full blood half caste and mass and all that um it was just really dreadful and any work they did it was like servitude type jobs, like from cleaning and looking after households to doing just to menial labouring tasks as well. Not a lot of them weren't even paid. They all given, or they might have been given some um, flour or tobacco or some tea, you know, and they pay. Um, that, that was that, so. That was the general idea of what immigration in this country for throughout the twentieth century was like. World War Two sort of changed that uh, to a certain degree. Um, they realised how small Australia population was, but how vulnerable we was. That was the turning point too for attached Australia to the US Imperial Bob, because um, Britain was gravely weakened. And then we, and because look at the geopolitics of Australia, where we de- we depend heavily on shipping to protect our shipping. We look towards an imperial power. Right. It was now to the US. Um, you know how long that's going to last? I don't know. Um, but the fact is here today, but with immigration after World War II, um, they started to realise we had to either populate or die, um, basically populate or die, basically. It was a small population. Uh, and both parties reckon, oh, we need to have significant immigration. I mean, they did look towards other northern European countries. France is a clear example. Uh, Carry on there, David. Sorry for the interruption there. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, I mentioned Denmark as well, but other Scandinavian countries. There was a t- there was a term called the beautiful bolts. Um, come over, and there was yeah, obviously you see the propaganda of people from Sweden, Norway, and that. Oh, what a lovely country! Encourage them to stay here as well. But they realised they had to sort of expand first. They looked at Southern European Italians and Greeks predominantly, people from Yugoslavia. As well, uh, at the same time too, with their stand side of it, they actually allowed um, those who were fleeing the Soviet Union that, that sided with the Nazis in World War Two, um, and like from the Ukraine, Yugoslavia, Poland, um, Hungary, and, uh, and and also those who sided with Mussolini in Italy. They found an escape route out here. Um, so yeah, we did a lot of them came out as well. Um, mm. At the same time, but yeah, we had a lot of that, but a lot of Greek people there, um, especially the Melbourne was uh, had the biggest migrant uh, Greek migrant community, and then Sydney behind after, um, and yeah, it was it, it was massive because they were fleeing a lot of the fascist junta there as well in uh, in Greece as well. Um, that was which was British backed, um, mm. and yeah, so right throughout through the through the fifties and sixties. 
massive immigration programs, but they still look towards Europe. They did. They weren't allowed people, say, from Africa, um, maybe Latin America, or you know, and especially Asia, weren't allowed in. There was still um, there was two significant events in the mid sixties, nineteen sixty seven. I led to believe there was a national referendum to recognise the the first people as countries as full citizens. Uh, the year we had national, and the yes vote got up. There was a majority, but still quite. A, when I looked at the results, I think it was about twenty five percent said no, and that's still quite significant. So racism was still trying to play a big heavy role there yeah. as well, um, differentiating them because um, that. But yeah, it took them all these years to recognise them as citizens. They're still fighting for a lot of their rights to this day. Yeah. Um, but when the Whitlam government came in the early seventies, he got, he removed the white the remnants of the, the white Australia policy. Um, and it was outdated. Racism was, was just real bad news, and that then allowed people from other countries, like the Middle East, Asia, to start coming in, into this country a lot more. We've always had the Chinese with us, but a lot of them were persecuted too. Interesting enough, but they, they, um, well, I'll, I'll retract that. Sorry, that when they were a lot of them were persecuted, um, um, and, that, and suffered, they suffered from a lot of discrimination as well. But the, and interesting, we've. We've always had people from, say, Central Asia, like Afghanistan and Middle East, since the 1800s anyway. We had the Afghan camel drivers. We have it, um, and, and to this day when we hear a lot of people, they don't like people of a particular religion, like the Islamic religion, we'll say, well, they've actually been with us since the 1800s. Yeah. Um, they helped opened up the outback, putting the first uh, overland telegraph holes in and also then eventually the railway. So they played a significant right. role right. in developing this country. Um, so... It's it's quite a bit of all this, you know, fear of other people. It's like, well, there's no need to. We've always had them here with us. Right, uh, right, right. Yes. So yes. the 70s changed all that and obviously the end of the Vietnam War when we pulled out and there was a lot of people um, leaving Vietnam coming here as well. The Fraser government opened it up and, and a lot of people were uh, fleeing refugees. But unfortunately to this day of immigration, uh, people like fleeing countries, which Australia has been, is very guilty of being involved in the imperial US imperial wars. A lot of people fleeing that and coming to it, trying to get to Australia now locked up in detention centres offshore in countries such as Nauru, Manus Island, um, and these facilities operated by private owners such as G4S, uh, mm. Transfield originally, uh, but and various other private prisons are making massive profit out of that. And these people are locked up for a long, long time and uh, not properly processed or nothing. And and eventually, when they if they do get seen, if they're lucky to get here, they're fortunate. And it's, it's such a disgrace how we do that. I mean, people seeking refuge. Okay, there's go. There should be some process. I like to believe you don't need to put them up in a prison camp type atmosphere run by a private company. Because yes, you probably need need to quarantine because especially COVID nineteen showed this. You know, go through those things, health checks, everything else. But look, I said, look, if they passed. Let me, let me bring once they've passed all that initial thing, bring them out in the community anyway. Especially if they've got something something to contribute. Especially in regional Australia as well, where they a lot of them do contribute greatly. Um, and yeah, so you know, and and that, that, that's and that's both major parties are complicit in this. Both Labor started it, Labor Party did, but also the um, Liberal National Conservative parties extended it even further. It's really dreadful how they treat them. Um, yeah. But all the name of making profit out of them too, but they bring up the race card, oh, you know, they're here to steal your jobs or here we've got high unemployment and all that. And with immigration, that still plays uh, um, on some people's goals. Look, uh, on people's minds, right. I think most important 
immigrate uh, with immigration because without it, this country would have grown wouldn't have grown at all. We wouldn't go right. nowhere. Um, and I think people have um, I understand. Um, yeah, but I, look, I can understand everyone's concerns about employment security. There's our unemployment while we're having this and that's pop. And unfortunately, immigration growth under capitalism is there to mostly increase profit, and that's what they're there for. It's not there to serve, serve it where, I say, it was under a socialism. It will be there to, yeah, a bigger population will be able to sustain, but there to improve society even further. That's the fundamental difference. But um, I don't I mean, look, I actually do like immigration. I quite enjoy people from many different countries and different cultures. I mean, the upside of it, I mean, if you love food, I mean, nice. we've got it here now from everywhere. It's it's amazing. Yeah. You know, when I was a child, you, a lot of the stuff we've got now that we didn't have back then. Nice. Um, and that was all introduced to us. And I, I've i actually talked to workers about immigration and don't get me wrong. And some of them might have a go at some from the Middle East. And I said, well, you enjoy Donna Kebab, don't you? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, well, come on. Where does that originate from? Turkey and yeah. Lebanon, etc. You know, it just it you know, and even people who speak against towards Chinese people that well. So you like going to a Chinese restaurant, don't you? You yeah. like to eat Chinese food and all Vietnamese yeah. food. It's just yeah, well, well, they also like going over to Bali and have a holiday there for cheap holiday for two weeks. So yeah. no, well, I just they, I just don't know the utter hypocrisy of it. So. Right. It, right. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a, that's an important question is, is um, as we've already explained, that immigration has always happened uh, uh, in Australia, or, uh, you know, ever since ever since 1788 or so, or so um, you know, the first wave, and, and then Irish, and then German, and then, and then to the modern times now. Um, and with, as we mentioned at the start of this conversation, about deindustrialization uh, and deunionization, and then the sort of... Um, vulnerability that working class people then have because of uh, of zero hour contracts because of bureaucracy with unions uh, and you couple that with whichever wave of immigration that's happening now whether it's Chinese or Middle Eastern or wherever 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 the people are coming from um, that must have a big role then that must as you say be a big concern for working class people that they are losing their jobs or they, they don't want people coming in and taking their jobs and that's a big trend. That's not just an Australian thing. I mean, if you look at Brexit, a big, big thing about immigration there. If you look at Trump, it's a big thing about immigration. So uh, as you said, there, you sort of when you're, um, I mean, when you're union organizing, sort of how big of a role, how much does that come up? The question of people coming here and taking our jobs. Yeah. Well, interesting. It can bring up in meetings one time. Uh, like I'll be having a meeting. I might be reporting back on a particular subject or, well, you know, a campaign or all negotiations and someone brings up the idea oh yeah well, what about all these people coming here taking our jobs straight out of, out of and you always get that in big meetings with work or someone coming out of no we're going with something different now what i do i'm trying to explain i said well look first there's two things i have to do because i'm limited with time i said look guys i'm just here i really need to concentrate on this with time. i'll address your issue in a minute but if I've got a bit of time, I'll try and address it. Now, I think this, what the trick is not to attack them uh, for raising it like that, um, especially if they mention that. And at the moment, this whole anti-China, let's say anti-China rhetoric going on, trying to water that down is how we neutralise it. Do we go face-to-face and saying, oh, you're racist, you're horrible? But no, I don't think that is. It's an underlying fear of, uh, of, of insecurity as well. Uh, and what, how are we going to achieve this? And this, unfortunately... What we call the left in this country these days has totally neglected that. Um, 
They're completely I mean, when they, when I've brought this up, they've said, no, we haven't neglected it. And I said, yes, you have, because the reality is today you haven't addressed their concerns. You know, um, yeah, haven't uh, have done that at all. And trying to explain it, it's the actual system itself that's, and I'll have to put it in a word that's so easy for them to understand, but it's actually the bosses that are the ones that are causing all this problem. It's the bosses that made the decision to close the factory down and send it offshore. It was the bosses that were in pursuit of greater, greater profit. Um, they've done this to you. There's this pursuit of the bosses that have done this. Um, well, let's focus on our real enemy. And it's also, it's the fault of the bosses not guaranteeing you full employment anymore, yeah. job security. They don't yeah. all the name of making super profits anymore. It's the inability for them to do so in the system that they uphold and trying to get that through to them. And I think that's, it's going to take a long, long, big effort. But for those, there are those that are trying to do that and we, it is a big task ahead of us. But when I say the left, I'm talking about Caleb Morpin calls the synthetic left and I tend to agree that and throw them into that camp. There's all their ideas, getting out there, shouting abuse at them. I said, well, hang on, let's just pull up. Not unless the actual right, complete neo-Nazis or something like that, maybe right. something to do with it. But most of the minority of people have just got basically a fear of the unknown, fear of insecurity, fear of that. And, I mean, look, we all high ideal. It was no different from South Africa, no different from New Zealand, America, everything else. We wanted to have a house. You know, yeah, might have a white picket fence around it, but you know, a nice guard, secure life. You at least you know you've joined the firm, you join for life. You're going to have a happy retirement. You know you're going to be looked after. Uh, your kids are going to be looked after. You know they're going to be educated to have a good future in front of them. Their grandchildren are going to have a good future in front of them, and so on, so on. And making an old saying is, we come into this world, uh, uh, we we let you know uh, uh, here, but we want to leave it a, a better place and right. who our and that's basically what a lot of people want, just some sort of comfort in their life and stability. They're not asking for, like, you know, a, uh, you know, a multi-billion dollar mansion and all the cars in the world they can have and mm. et cetera. And, you know, they're not asking for that at all. And I think that, but all that's, but all the things they've been asking, it's been taken away from them uh, for all these years. And all of a sudden when they're getting shouted in the face and everything else and all that's been dear, it's been taken away and systematically destroyed. Um, I just want to actually touch on about labour aristocracy because I'm hearing this quite a lot. And I'm just going to say this to all those who use it, don't use that term loosely. Use it for the actual, it's not the force of me. The labour aristocracy now has been destroyed systematically in the US, Australia, New Zealand, everything else. The bourgeoisie no longer need it. Um, they're, they're trying to do whatever they survive. And unfortunately, some of them have gone to follow the likes of Trump, all the top right wing populist. Um, and the fact is because they've lost everything. They've lost a lot. They've seen everything, and that's what it comes down to. Um, and this is where those of us left wing need to play this role to get to win them back to left wing populism again. To realise it's the system itself that's deprived them and that's done this to them, uh, not a group of people. Uh, and this is where we need to actually get them focused so we can struggle on to away from capitalism. The system is moribund now. It's gone. It's actually dying. It's no point in keeping it alive. Uh, but a lot of these people don't see beyond that. They just um, and when they saw a demagogue like Trump, and which deliberately misled them, even right up to what happened in early January in Capitol Hill, deliberately misled them and then knifed them in the back. Absolutely. Um, but that I mean, it's just like, well, you know, that that's the tragic side of it as well. Um, and that so. You know, we've got a lot of work to do. And I've got to say, too, like those who have been involved in the anti-fascist struggles, a whole lot, well, we do need to engage with the masses, and this is why it's important. Otherwise, we get a situation like it would be someone worse than Trump's going to come along next time. Um, right. you know, and, you know, see, you know, and this is the problem we've got. 
we don't do something about it and uh, and start addressing those concerns of those people. And you'll find deep down it's nothing to do with the colour of anyone's skin or their different culture. It's just because they're, they're concerned of losing what, what they've worked for and uh, in life and everything else. It's like, yeah, it's the idea of having a, a house and security in life has gone out the window, and that, and, and I think you know, it's a, it's an elemental, um, it's a fundamental point for human human survival: clothing, food, shelter, water, along with utilities and security and stuff. So, okay. yeah. Mm. Now, I think I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on with a lot of what you just said there in terms of how to approach working class people um, uh, with 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 whatever what they're saying in some some senses that the the sort of uh, liberal sort of uh, middle class uh, quote unquote elite or sort of um, highly educated individuals, the synthetic left, people that will rather berate and cancel and uh, dox uh, yeah. someone for saying something um, and usually as you said, these things are said because people are, are scared of losing their job and their livelihood and, and, their, and their food and, and housing as you said. Um, I think there's something you mentioned earlier which is about young people not um, even knowing what a union is or understanding a union. And I think this is something that's very important. Um, and and, and it's, uh, the idea of the union is, is attacked quite a lot in many ways in places that you're not even uh, aware of. I mean, for example, I'm watching, um, I was watching the, the, the series The Office, uh, the US one, the, the American office, The Office, it's oh, called yeah. The Office. And uh, there's, there's a particular episode where the warehouse workers have decided to form a union and... Uh, and even though it's a comedy show and it's it's not political particularly, uh, the boss comes in, uh, Jane, uh, and she says, "If you form a union, this branch will be closed. The job will be, you know, this will be all be over. The whole thing will be over." And um, I was uh, an office worker in a sense. I was in an office. I was a recruitment consultant once, and uh, and I was political. I was I was obviously uh, you know I joined a communist party, and I thought about forming a union but the idea even even though i had read all this stuff and and uh you know was knew why it was important and knew why it was vital i still couldn't even approach my colleagues because i just thought that the idea seemed so far and so distant so impossible and so and also risky it did because you know thinking oh let's let's form a union in the office let's 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 ask everyone to start the process it it, uh, it just seemed like it would end in me losing my job and at the time i was you know, I was paying off debt from 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 the uh, university and and was living uh, paying rent. Uh, you know, not 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 very stable. So um, I think there's two things. It's just a sort of actually one main thing is could you actually maybe explain to us uh, the things maybe the the most important things that you think unions have actually won for working class people and why they should join them uh, still try and join them and consider them uh, today. I mean, I don't know whether you want to talk about the weekend or the eight hour workday, but why is, why is I don't know, usually Skype's pretty stable. This is the first time I've actually had this issue. Okay, so again, sorry, we've been cut off there. We've had quite an unstable connection today. But I'll just rehash the question just in case we lost it. But why is it important, so important for workers, young people particularly, to join a union? What have unions done? I mean, whether it's the weekend or the eight-hour workday, uh, why would you say it's, it's a good idea? Well, for starters, I mean, besides the conditions they do enjoy today, I mean, we have a 38-hour week. They have four weeks annual leave. You're full-time, 17.5% annual leave loading on top of that, overtime rates, um, shift penalty loadings. 
um, and that, but also other guaranteed rights as well that uh, you have got protections in place that you can actually dispute an employer if there's a decision that, uh, made by the employer that uh, will be detrimental to your either health and safety. All health and safety legislation was actually fought for by unions um, as well, but also to them, I want to tra transfer you from day shift to night shift or to another location somewhere without you actually going through proper consultation. And you have got every right to do dispute it because that's a big disruption in your lifestyle. Um, it just can't make you work excessive hours. It can't force you to work for your lunch break. I mean, simple things. But even the facilities you work, your lunchroom, your, 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 your lunch table, your chairs, the microwave, the, the pie oven, the refrigerator, the hot warning water, cold water, drinking water. Cetera, tea and coffee and all that uh, was all it was all thoughtful by workers who've been in, in 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 the unions, but also also giving you some sort of political uh, voice as well for on the way forward. Not perfect by any means, but it allows you the ability to actually uh, when there's a political decision made, it allows you guys to allows everyone to mobilise and band together, and unite to get against that political decision. That's being that be against your working class interests. Um, Obviously, at the times when people don't understand that, that uh, the thing is what the unions have provided for all. Well, I mean, when they're talking about freedom and all that, well, it was actually workers organised in unions. It was workers themselves that, for the basic fundamental freedoms we enjoy today, wasn't on wasn't on the battleground. It was actually organised in the workplace. Um, Karl Marx correctly looked in, in into the workplace itself. That's where primarily it all started. Our relations to the means of production. So I'd be saying to all those young people out there. Um, even if there might be casual part-time, you could still join a union. It might be a less, less fee, but you still need to have those basic rights and people to back you up. That's what it comes down to. Is we don't have any... For working-class people like ourselves, we don't have anyone else bar each other. You know, we, we're up against the multinational banks, international finance, governments, big business, everything. We're up against the whole entire system. It's not our system. You know, when we hear it's our economy, our economy well, no, ain't wrong again. It's the capitalist system. It belongs to them. But uh, we, we can only sell our labour in order to receive some uh, to receive a wage um, to make to try and make ends meet. So really, it is much more logical now to start actually banding back to get, uh, together again and, for, and and furthering our own interests. Our own interests are separate from what the bosses are. Bosses are there to make a profit. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the business in the first place if they're not going to make a profit. Um, that's the that's the basic fundamentals of capitalism. We go to work in order to make trying to make ends meet to to survive day to day. Um, and look, I think also too for further job security and that. That's why I would be joining a union. I know it's a wages and conditions, but there's also the social issues. I mean, you know, we unions we play great roles. We you know we will the Australian trade union movement in the sixties, especially in the seventies uh, and the seventies. Were played and they played the leading role in the anti in the Vietnam moratoriums against stopping us pulling Australia out of Vietnam War. It wasn't the middle class? It wasn't these group of rich liberals or anything like that? It was mm. actual working class people playing the leadership role of it and the driving force that that, that, that stopped we our ability to withdraw our labour. We played some historical um, roles where, you know, it was the union movement, especially the waterfront unions, that helped Indonesia achieve independence from Dutch colonial rule. Um, with that, they actually tied the the seafarers and the wharfies refused to move shifts and uh, move ships and <coughs> unload goods a lot. They tied all the Dutch ships up. They couldn't mm. um, immobilise them. 
You know, we played those fundamental roles. And, yeah, all both things, the anti-war um, through, the, you know, preserving our built environment and natural environment as well, you know, and also playing important roles in other social justice issues as well. And so we do play a huge, bigger role than just where you just what you get in your pocket every week, which is important, don't get me wrong, but it's also a much broader, uh, a much broader play and see our own social life that benefit working class people. I mean, even too, the, you know, fight, fighting for, you know, years ago and for fighting for job security so you can have a house, an affordable house as well. One you can, uh, at least, you know, you don't have a have to sell when you're elderly. You can always live, you can enjoy for the rest of your life, you know, all those things, um, those things they tend to enjoy. That was actually fought for by unions because mm. without the unions, they'd be still doing 16-hour days in the most deplorable conditions. Now, I mean, I'll just use Bangladesh as a classic example. That's what it would be like. You know, when you yeah. look at the working conditions of Bangladesh, there you go, buildings collapsing on you, the whole lot, and then yeah. total disregard. If you're injured, doesn't matter. Oh, well, we'll just replace you with someone else. Uh, mm -hmm. Workers' compensation is another big issue for us. If you're injured at work, you know, it's by a union play. And for workers' compensation payments, that was all fought for by unions. Um, income protection, if you are injured at home outside of workhouse, if you are in a union and happen to fight for a good union agreement or within your ward, at least you get. At least you don't. You have income coming in while you, uh, you know, you break your leg at home fixing a roof on your house in your home. Break your leg. At least through that time you're off, you're not. Uh, you're still receiving income. You know, they help you over. I mean, even Medicare. Not okay. It's not great, but that was actually that was a hard fought for thing by unions for many years. Yeah. Um, and so it's your superannuation. So all these things people take for granted. But actually, one of the things we do enjoy, we're actually yeah. fought for by unions. Mm. Yes. Yeah, fought for and, and won and with yeah. long struggle. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, th thank you so much, David, uh, for, for coming in today and speaking. I, I really enjoyed this. I think this has been like a, um, I mean, we've had a, obviously some detailed discussions about uh, legislation and, 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 and a particular sort of union organizing in Australia, but also we've talked about the history of Australia in terms of immigration. I, I didn't know that um, there was such a radical uh, history uh, with, with the Irish and the German different revolutionaries, different, different uh, chartists, different people coming into to Australia and the particularities of, um, of bonded labour, of, of the, uh, the penal system, that it was such a, a brutal, terrible thing. Um, but again, thank you so much, David, for coming in and I hope that uh, people will find your discussion about the use of a union and the importance of, of, of organising and becoming class conscious and, and working together and how to do that. Um, so thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you very much. is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.